You're listening to the Acts, How the Gospel Changes the World series, preached by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. This week, Pastor instructed me to do my best to keep this sermon brief, and it's not just because the entire building smells like pizza, it's because we're going to get to the business meeting, and it worked out really well because the passage I'm in this evening is... One of, another one of those passages where it seems more like a travel log than it does a passage of Scripture. Now, I'm not saying there aren't good things there. There are. And I was going through it, and I was like, okay, I don't know whether to just go through this part quickly and then spend my time in the following passage, or if we should just park here for a little bit and see the lesson here. Because I know the Holy Spirit and Luke, they have a reason for writing it. And so I decided that I would stay there and, and spend the time there, and it just worked out perfectly that, that this would be a more brief sermon. So I think we can keep it probably under an hour or so, <laughs> or 20 minutes. We'll see how it goes. But that's the plan tonight. So let's pray, and then we'll get into our text. Father, we love you, Lord. We thank you. We serve a great God, Lord, a God who is powerful, who is mighty, who is strong, uh, a God who created all things, who has everything in his control, a Lord that you sustain all things, and yet a God who loves his creation. And though we're rebellious, you loved us so much, you sent Jesus to reconcile us back to you and so we're thankful that you are not just a powerful god but you're a compassionate god and god i pray that as we go through this lesson we'll realize how much we need you and how much we need one another and how you've designed this church to function in a way that we shouldn't and we couldn't grow without one another Um, god help us to see that we are not designed to do it in our own strength but in yours and in the strength that you give through other believers We love you, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 1, verse 8, Paul said this, and Paul wrote this from Corinth, and he wrote it three years before he finally took the journey to Rome. And he said this, First, I thank God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. And so Paul is writing to the Roman church. He's never been there. He wants to go there, but he's never been there yet. And so if you know the book of Romans, you know it is the most theological book in the entire Bible. It's a wonderful theological explanation of the gospel. And he's writing, I think, that way because he wants to make sure that this church has the main thing right. But he's never been there. And so he says in verse 9, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. Church, I want you to know that I love you, I care about you, I pray for you. Then in verse 10, Making a request... If by any means now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. So he expresses his desire to go to see that church. He has a great desire to finally get to Rome, to encourage a church there, to preach the gospel in Rome. But he says there that his goal or what he wants, what he's asking for is a prosperous journey. And I think you could spend a lot of time talking about what that prosperous journey looked like because God's version of a prosperous journey was very different than I think Paul's was and very different than ours would be. We ask God to bless our lives. We ask God to give us a prosperous life. but We don't understand that sometimes that means going into a shipwreck. Sometimes that means heading for disaster, for trial, for tribulation. That that is the prosperous journey God wants for us. And that was for Paul. And so he went into this journey. And so we began the journey from Caesarea to Rome in Acts 27 back in November in this series. We were, back in November, we were there. And when they set sail, I think nobody on the ship had any idea what was to come. Even Paul. 
Well, tonight will mark the final leg of this exciting journey. And along the way, we've seen this incredible shipwreck. We've seen God save all the passengers, but the boat destroyed. We've seen exciting things happen in Malta. And so it's been a wonderful, exciting journey. And this is going to be the very last leg. Come next week, we will be in Rome. In verse 11, this last part of the journey begins. So let's read in Acts chapter 28, verse 11. It says, And after three months, we departed in a ship of Alexandria, which had wintered in the isle, whose sign was Castor and Pollux. So they've been in Malta now for this time, this winter period. And it's finally safe to set sail again. And they set sail in a ship that was staying at Malta during the winter and was headed to Rome. And the ship had the sign Castor and Pollux. Now the Castor and Pollux are two Greek gods. They're the sons of Zeus. And they're the patrons of ships or seamen. And so what they do is they are supposed to help the, the people on the ship get to their journey safely. That is their job as gods. And it's probably appropriate for this ship, that is this, this group of people that have been shipwrecked to be on this ship in particular. But um, I wonder sometimes, why would Luke include a detail like that? Like why does he want us to know that the sign or the figurehead, you know, at the front of the ships, they have that, sometimes they have that statue ornamental type statue at the front. Why would he say that it's these two Greek gods? Well, I think he did it for a couple reasons. One reason is because he wants us to remember that this is a real historical event. And so he's, he's giving a historical ex- explanation of something that happened, something that was there, a detail that was real. I think the other reason for it is that he rem- he's reminding us of the pagan society that this all took place in. We tend to forget we think of our world as being so wicked and evil and we forget that paul is on his way to rome by god's will but he's standing on a ship that has two greek gods in the front leading the way this was the world that they were in the pagan society that everybody around them believed in this polytheism all these different gods and so he's giving this detail i think to remind us of that verse 12 says in landing at syracuse we tarried there three days And from thence we fetched a compass and came to Regium. And after one day the south wind blew, and we came the next day to Petuli. Wherefore we found brethren and were desired to tarry with them seven days, and so we went toward Rome. So now we get this travelogue portion of the text. And we find that they come to Syracuse. Syracuse is a fairly large seaport city. It's on the southeast coast of Sicily, and they were there for three days. And then the Bible says that they fetched a compass. I thought <laughs> that was a kind of a strange thing. It's like, okay, did somebody forget their compass and they had somebody go fetch one? What, what's going on here? Well, it's a, an, actually an old English term and it just means they traveled around or they did like a roundabout and headed to regime. So it's nothing to do with a real compass. Crazy, huh? Anyways, that, that's, this is what they do. They, they fetch a compass, they come to regime, and that is 70 miles southwest. This is the the toe of Italy. If you know Italy looks kind of like a boot, this would be the toe section. So they come to this, another port city of Italy. And then they head to Petuli. Now Petuli is usually a longer journey from Regium to Petuli, but it only took two days because they finally get the wind that they were hoping for the whole time. This south wind, and they were going southwest, and it's just the perfect wind for them. So they make it in just two days. And this is a large port city for Rome, actually the largest at that time. 
And there they meet some brethren. See, here they're not in this situation now where they have to get on another ship. They don't have to find another ship, board another ship, and, and leave at a certain time. They're now going to be taking the Appian Way, or the Via Appia, for the rest of the journey. It's the, it's the Appian Road to Rome, and so they don't have to worry about catching the next ship so they can spend time there. Well, what happens when they get to, to Batuli is that there's a group of Christians, a group of believers, that invite the people to stay with them. And so we have this Christian hospitality happening for all these people because they know of Paul. They know Paul is on his way to Rome. They've heard this whole story and they're expecting him. And so they're all ready to take care of these people. And so Julius, the commander, allows them to stay there for seven days. Well, finally they head out in verse 15 toward Rome. It says, From thence, when the brethren heard of us, they came to meet us as far as Apiforum and the three taverns whom, when Paul saw, he thanked God and took courage. So they head out from Petuli, and while they're on their way to Rome, they stop at this place called Apiform. Apiform is just a small market town. But when they get there, they're greeted by certain people. Now, these aren't people that live in Apiform. These are people from Rome 40 miles away. And these people from Rome have traveled these 40 miles for one purpose, to meet Paul. Now, this is, this is kind of crazy, I think, because when you think about it, Paul is headed toward Rome. If they just wait, you know, the two or three more days that it would take to get there, they're going to see Paul eventually, very soon. So why make the journey 40 miles, two or three nights, on foot there, two or three nights all the way back just to meet Paul? Well, I think it's because they were that excited that he was coming. And what we see here is that God uses that. See, it would seem almost like a silly, I mean, I'm an analytical kind of guy. I like to plan things. I don't like to waste time. And so if, if I was planning these people time out, I would not say you should spend six days traveling so that you're going to meet a guy that you'll meet in three days anyway. I would say find a better use of those six days. But that is not God's plan for them. God's plan is to send them out and so that they'll encourage. See what, what happens at the end of verse 15? It says, when Paul saw them, he thanked God and he took courage. And I've always pictured Paul as this strong man who's got this just inner power, this inner courage who goes along no matter what. But this text seems to paint a little bit of a different picture where Paul, even after all of this, all the incredible things that have happened on this journey, all the incredible things he's experienced in Malta, seeing people healed, after all of this, he gets to this place and he needs some encouragement. And he takes his courage from the encouragement from those believers. See, he wasn't a one-man team. He wasn't doing it all himself. He took courage and he thanked God because of these believers that came out and met him. Well, it continues because it says after they get to Apiforum, they travel 10 more miles to a place called the Three Taverns and people meet him there as well. <laughs> and so he's got one group that meets him not before him. And the next group, 10 miles later, meets him, meets him at this place called the Three Taverns. And the Three Taverns would be like a rest stop, be like an inn. And so I, I just want you to get the picture that this is God encouraging, and this is how Paul is encouraged. And when Paul shows up in Rome, he is ready to go. I mean, he begins by speaking to the Jews about the gospel. He's so excited to preach the gospel there in Rome. But he took courage because of the strength he gained from these believers that came and met him.
Verse 16 says, And when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard, but Paul was suffered to dwell by himself with a soldier that kept him. So they finally, after all of this time, arrived in Rome. And Paul, instead of being taken to the prison barracks, instead of being put into the prison with the rest of the soldiers, he's allowed to stay in kind of like a house arrest situation where he's got his own place and he's allowed to stay somewhere and, and write some of the wonderful letters he wrote, um, but he is chained to a guard the whole time. And they would have just taken places. And it would, I mean, if you weren't a Christian, it would have been terrible to be that guard because you're here in Paul day in and day out. Um, actually, it would have been wonderful to be a guard, but I'm, I don't know if they all saw it that way, at least not immediately. So there, they finally, after all this time, arrive at Rome. So if you're anything like me, you think, okay, great, but what is Luke trying to teach us? Well, I think there's that detail there that he throws in there a couple times. He wants us to know that when they arrive at Regium, there is brothers that show hospitality and, and have them come in for seven days. And when they arrive in Apiform in the three taverns, there are other brothers and sisters in Christ that come out and meet him and that, they, that he takes courage from, from their presence and from the fact that they're excited to finally have him there. And just the fact that he throws in those two not essential details to this journey tells me that he wanted us to get something from that. And I was thinking about that. I was like, okay, okay, how do I make that meaningful for us, though? I started thinking about it from Julius's standpoint. Julius was the Roman centurion who was, from the very beginning, in charge of this, the hundred men and all of these prisoners that were being transported to Rome. Well, you think from Julius's standpoint, what he's seen so far with Paul. He's introduced to Paul as a, as a common criminal. But strangely, two of Paul's friends decide to show such great royal loyalty that they get on the ship with Paul and make themselves prisoners so that they can go to Rome. So you got Luke and Aristarchus and Paul. And, and he might be thinking, oh, that's strange. I've never seen like two men decide to get on the ship with their friends and be prisoners. But I mean, maybe they just have misplaced loyalty. Who knows? We'll see. But then they go on this journey and Paul gives them advice that at one point they should not travel on because eventually the ship might wreck. And so he hears that advice and thinks, who are you, Paul? You're just a criminal. I'm not going to listen to you. I'm going to listen to the ship's owner, the, the master of the ship. But they should have listened to Paul. After about 14 days of being in a storm where everybody on the ship except for Paul thought they were going to die for sure, he realizes that he should have listened to Paul and Paul stands up and makes that known. He says, hey, you should have listened to me in the first place, fellas. But I have good news for you. You're not going to die. Every person's life on this ship will be spared. The only thing that won't survive this journey is the ship itself. That's a pretty incredible prophecy. But I wonder if already Julius is looking at Paul thinking, oh, he was right. Maybe he knows something I don't know. Maybe there's, maybe there's something to this guy. And it is, it's, it's funny that when Paul tells the Roman centurions that the sailors are trying to escape the ship, that the centurion commands the sailors to stop that from happening. And so it, already at that point, Paul has the ear of Julius. We go on it, and then Paul stands up and he says, why are you guys not eating? You should take some food for your health. I already told you God said that you would be spared. And so everybody in the ship has a meal. It seems like this tide is turning from this guy that he doesn't know and doesn't probably respect to somebody he's listening to. The whole ship seems to respect him. And we know it's true that he respects him because when all of his soldiers want to kill the prisoners after the shipwrecks, he decides 
No, you're not killing any of the prisoners because I want to save Paul's life. Now, all of that happens before they got off on the Malta, before Paul is saved from the viper bite, before he heals Publius's father, before he heals many, many people on the island. I, I bet from his perspective, he's seeing a greater and greater version of Paul. He's seeing, wow, this, this, this man is a man of God. This is impressive. He's got some power that I can't explain. Something that I've never seen before is present in his life. And so he, he thinks highly of Paul. And, and certainly along the way, he sees God's power work through Paul, and he sees um, some two men, Luke and Aristarchus, being good friends to Paul, um, showing loyalty to him. But then Paul arrives here in Regium, and these for seven days, these Christians gather together who have never met Paul before, and they help him and all of the people that are with him. I think he sees that, and he says, what's, what's going on here? Why are they doing this? Then they go to the next town, and all of a sudden, all these people have come from Rome, two or three days journey to meet him. And then, then 10 miles later, and again, there's another group of people waiting for Paul. I think from Julius's mindset, he might begin to see that Paul was not doing this on his own. That along the journey, he couldn't have done anything if it wasn't for the help of God and the help and, and encouragement from other brothers and sisters in Christ. And I mean, this is not only in this story. This is throughout the book of Acts. We see this to be true. But I think Julius, seeing this happen, I, he's seeing Christianity as it was designed to work. I got thinking about all of this, how Paul was not alone, how he had the knowledge of God, he had the power of God, he had the people of God encouraging him. And, and I, I, I thought, actually what I thought about was a commercial that kept playing the Olympics. You ever have a commercial that won't get out of your head? Well, do you know the one from Canadian Tire, these Olympics? What did, it all say, what did it always say? We all play for Team Canada. So they'd have a commercial, and at the end of every commercial, it was like, we'd, we all play for Team Canada. Well, between the first and the second period, after Jonathan Taves scored the first goal in Canada's gold medal victory today in hockey, they had a, an extended version of that commercial. And I caught part of it, so I looked it up this afternoon. And the, the commercial said this. So Jonathan Taves scores the first goal. It ends up being the winning goal. But this is what it said. Jonathan Taves' goal, assisted by the early rising parents, the backyard rink builders, the tireless fundraisers, the coaches and trainers, the pregame meal makers, the kindly business sponsors, the trusty carpoolers, the play-by-play -play announcers, the crowd igniters, the statisticians, organ players, inspirational sign makers, inspirational sign makers, grandparents, scouts, skate sharpeners, foam finger fanatics, and everyone else that proves that there is no such thing as an unassisted goal. We all play for Team Canada. And I read that, and, and, and I thought of the Apostle Paul. That just like Jonathan Taves, Paul was not a one-man team. He was not doing this on his own. It, nothing that he accomplished was Paul's accomplishments. Ultimately, it was always all for the glory of God, but all of it was accomplished because there was a group of people that were loving and supporting Paul, that Paul's growth and Paul's accomplishments could all be attributed to what God did through his people, not what God th did through just Paul. 
Do you realize that you need the church? That you need the church. There is not a person in this room, there's not a person in this world that can grow in Christ with a Bible by themselves on the top of a mountain. You say, what? I mean, you top of the mountain, you have, you're, you're as close to God as you can get. All the time in the world to pray. All the time in the world to, to read the Word of God. And, and can that time be good? Yes, it can be great. It can be wonderful. But God's design for your growth is not that. Not just that. In order for you to grow, in order for you to, to accomplish anything in your life and for the glory of God ultimately, you need the church. And the church needs you. And you realize that the church is this corporate body. It's the people here. It's not the building or any of those things. Well, the church needs you. Because if, if I'm living my Christian life, and the only way that I can grow is by learning from the example of other people, by being encouraged by other people, by being challenged by other people. If, if it takes all of this, all of you, to help me to grow, I guess it kind of makes sense that it would take people like me to help you all to grow too. See, we, we feed off each other. We need each other. That's how God designed it. The church is, is a body that needs all of its parts. It's a building that needs every piece. And so you need the church, and the church needs you. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a great preacher, one of the greatest preachers of all time. And if you think, who should be most likely to succeed without the church, you would think it'd be somebody like Martin Lloyd-Jones, because he knows his Bible inside and out, he knows the Christian life, he, knows, he can teach people how to do it, he can counsel people. I mean, if there's somebody that should succeed, be a guy like him. Well, he said this, I would rather make bricks without straw than try to live the Sermon on the Mount in my own strength. He realized he needed the strength of God. He realizes he needed the people of God because he can't do the impossible without them. Spurgeon called the church the dearest place on earth. See, we, we go through the book of Acts and we see that Paul does some amazing things. And certainly we can have a great deal of respect for Paul. He's a wonderful example. But realize that that was not done in Paul's own strength. He relied on God and he re relied on the bride of Christ, the church. If we ever hope to live victoriously as believers, so must we. Let's pray. Father, we thank you just for these um, few verses here that remind us of how you encouraged Paul through the local church, how believers came out to meet him and encourage him and to give him a place to stay, a place to lay his head, some food. And, and some of those things, Lord, they seem so simple, but every part of the church is essential. We need one another. Uh, Lord, I thank you for your design. I thank you for the church that you've given us here. I believe, Lord, we have a healthy church, a church that does love each other, that does desire to grow and, and desires in unity to glorify you. And God, I pray that you continue to bless this place and, and pray every single one of us would play our part as you want us to. We love you, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.